0: God to take any looted treasure from the rubble of Jericho. It was all dedicated to God. In fact, Joshua decreed at the cost of his firstborn son, will he lay its foundations at the cost of his youngest? Will he set up his gates? There was a curse against anyone who would dare to rebuild Jericho, and it was never rebuilt. It was never to be rebuilt because the ruins could testify to the sovereignty of God. It was an audiovisual aid of what happens to those who defy God. And future generations took that prohibition seriously, even during the decadent days of the judges when sins were multiplied and when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Even then, no one dared to rebuild Jericho. No one dared for over 500 years until Ahab became king and did more to provoke the Lord to anger than all the kings before him. Ahab broke all existing records of irreverence and that emboldened underachieving sinners to raise the bar. And as the darkness descended over Israel, some degenerate said, Why don't we rebuild Jericho? And all the people said, yeah, that's exactly what we should do. Because from the enemy's perspective, Jericho had to be rebuilt. Not only was it an eyesore, but it was an embarrassment. It was bad for business, bad for morale. The Jericho site reminds people that God judges sinners. We don't need that sort of information getting out to the public because they could even repent. If we rebuild Jericho, everyone will forget that sin has consequences. In Ahab's time, Hael of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. Now they were doing the same thing in the New Testament era. Paul wrote about it when he described the immorality of the Roman Empire in Romans chapter 1. He says there Beginning at verse 19, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their foolish thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, if you don't want a divine creator cramping your style and making you feel guilty, there's good alternatives. Get people's attention off the creator and onto creation. And of course, today, the best alternative to creation is uh, evolution. Academics love the theory of evolution with all their heart and with all their mind because it makes God irrelevant and unnecessary. But the Bible says it's no excuse. So on the Day of Judgment, it's going to turn out to be exactly that, a very poor excuse. And people are going to say, really? But it was such a good theory. It had such impressive references. There was Darwin, there was Carl Sagan, Hawking, Hitchens. We thought it was true, but it's no excuse. The theory of evolution is just another attempt to defy God and rebuild Jericho. Paul goes on then to describe in Romans 1 the consequences of a false cosmology. And how that faulty worldview creates a climate for wickedness. He says in verse 26, Because of this, God gave them over to the shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. That's in the Bible. That's what it says. You see, when the light shine strong. People are ashamed of sin, but when it gets darker, shame begins to turn into pride. This has been Gay Pride Week in Calgary, and Prime Minister Trudeau has been marching in these parades. We're rebuilding Jericho. In the Dark Ages, we see the old heresies resuscitated. We see the Old superstitions exhumed, like the New Age movement, the Da Vinci Code. Let's rebuild Jericho. We'll teach God a history lesson. You can't touch this. We will We will rock you. When I was in Israel, we, they took us on an archaeological dig, at, to an archaeological dig at Jericho. It's one of the oldest cities that exists on earth. And they've determined there were at least 10 cities on that site. It was rebuilt 10 times. But what about the warning? What about the consequences? Consequences, are you kidding? That was over 500 years ago. There has to be a statute of limitations for that sort of thing. Besides, we've got new safety standards. No one's going to get hurt. In Ahab's time, Hael of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abraham. Look, look, that was just a coincidence. Let's keep building. The show must go on. And it says he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sigub. In accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. It reminds us of Paul's words in Galatians 6: Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Whoever sows to please his sinful nature will, from that nature, reap destruction. The oldest son died when they laid the foundation, and the youngest when they set up the gates. How do you explain it? Well, let's just call it the price of freedom. If you want more liberation, you cannot make an omelet without breaking some eggs. Sure, we have sexual predators in our society, but we don't want censorship. We know that drunk driving is a problem. Let's talk about it after Oktoberfest. There's always a few casualties. It's the price you pay for freedom. Well, the main thing, I guess, was that it worked. Yes, we can. It is finished. Jericho is now open for business. They did it. We are the champions of the world. Defying God produces such an adrenaline rush. So what was God going to do about it? Another flood? Fire and brimstone? Chapter 17, verse 1 says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will neither be dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. The book of James explains it a little bit more fully. James chapter 5, verse 17 says, The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Elijah was just like us, and he was deeply disturbed by the evil that was escalating in the promised land. So he decided to do something about it, something radical. Elijah decided to pray. But not like we do. When we pray, we ask God to bless our leaders and keep our land glorious and free. Elijah did not pray like that. He was just like us, but he did not pray like we do. He prayed for judgment to fall. Elijah, it says, prayed that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three years in a half years. See, they even had a problem with global warming back in those days. And this drought was very appropriate because the current idol, Baal, was kind of like the Secretary of Agriculture. He was getting all the credit for the record harvest and the cattle on a thousand hills. A drought would expose him as a fraud and hit him where it hurts. A year of drought would not look good on Baal's resume. Another year would drop his approval rating dramatically. And by the third year, people would probably start thinking about returning back to God. And with another six months, you'd even have a revival. So Elijah prayed. And God answered. They made a very effective team. Ahab had turned their spiritual ecosystem into a wasteland, so God turned the land of milk and honey into Death Valley. If we fast forward to 2017, we'll see that God is still searching for those who feel the way he does. People who are grieved at sin, who are horrified by the shameful things happening in our decadent society, And even more, God is looking for people who are willing to pay the price. You see, we know that God is provoked to anger by this present darkness. But we don't want judgment because it's going to affect us all. That famine was devastating for everyone, both the guilty and the innocent. If God's wrath is poured out from sea to shining sea on the true north strong and free, what's going to happen to gas prices? Interest rates. Airline tickets. We're planning a vacation. I mean, there's going to be an all-you-can-eat buffet. We know that God is angry, but not judgment, not now because well, you know, we're still quite quite comfortable. Besides, our eyes are getting used to the dark. So when we pray, it's almost like anger management. We don't bring up anything about judgment. We keep God busy with all the small stuff. Traveling mercies, hedge of protection, give us today our daily gluten, you know, stuff like that. It's all important. But maybe God is looking for people who feel the way he does And who are willing to pay the price. You see, Elijah had no idea how he was going to survive the next 42 months. He prayed that it would not rain. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. And one of the consequences was that Elijah became the most unpopular man in Israel. This was all his fault. He became a fugitive, right at the top of the 10 most wanted list. And Elijah was suffering a lot more than Ahab was. Ahab's biggest challenge was finding enough grass to feed his mules. In fact, during that search, the king finally found public enemy number one. In chapter 18, verse 17, Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw him, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? It was all Elijah's fault everything was going so well. Sure, we had to kill some people. Queen Jezebel uh, slaughtered every true believer that she could get her hands on. But it was for the sake of national unity. We're building a better world here. And then we get so rudely interrupted. Elijah's prayer had hacked into Ahab's progressive aspiration for a millennium of peace and prosperity. It was all Elijah's fault. Have you noticed that there is a similar sentiment developing in our society? Because, you see, we are just not cooperating. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of the world. And we've taken that seriously, and they're beginning to notice that, and they're beginning to get upset. We're not conforming. So we're not open-minded, and we're not tolerant enough. They're saying our rigid beliefs are creating an atmosphere of prejudice and phobia and violence. One atheist even called us the Christian Taliban. Some even say that teaching the Bible to our children is a form of child abuse. You see, we are the problem. Now, we know exactly where this comes from. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. We know what's behind all of this. And we see where it leads, too. According to Open Doors Ministries and the Voice of the Martyrs, there are 50 countries right now in this world where Christians are persecuted. On the back of the bulletin, every week, you have another incident being reported 50 countries and they estimate that every week there's an average of 322 believers who are killed for their faith in these countries every week 214 churches or christian properties are destroyed and every week there are 722 forms of violence against christians including beatings abductions rapes and forced marriages And it's all happening because these Christians refuse to conform to the pattern of the world because they dare to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. In some places, that is absolutely unacceptable. It's a capital crime worthy of the death penalty. Right now, ISIS is trying to eliminate Christian communities wherever their reign of terror extends. And isn't it interesting, our government monitors every slight against anyone who's gay and holds a press conference, and yet doesn't even recognize the genocide. We'll have to do some more research, they say. In fact, Emperor Justin II recently told some pastors that Christians are the worst part of Canadian society. Can you imagine that? We are the worst part of Canadian society. You think Trump says some outrageous things. NDP leader Thomas Mulcair said, Christians are un-Canadian. They're going against Canadian values. Folks, it is starting to get really interesting. Really, really interesting. If we don't conform, we are the problem. So what do we do? We have a number of options. We can keep silent and hope the storm blows over. We can retreat and wait for the rapture. We can conform and become everything they want us to be. Progressive, inclusive, tolerant, open-minded. You know, that word progressive is interesting because you, you, you hear it all the time now. It's an excuse for what... Is happening in our society. And apparently, we're not progressive. And that's okay because I found an even better word. I'd love to be called progressive, but there's a much better word. And that word is faithful. Isn't it better to be faithful than progressive? We don't need to be progressive. Another option is we can become totally discouraged and lose hope. Or we can do what Elijah did and go on the offensive. And that's exactly what we need to do in this present darkness. And I believe that going on the defense offensive involves at least three things. First of all, instead of getting discouraged and downcast, we have to escalate our worship 30 fold, 60 fold 100 fold Habakkuk chapter 3 verses 16 and 19 talks about that when the worst things that you can imagine happen worship God, praise him exalt him as never before Paul wrote these words on death row in Philippians 4 verse 4 rejoice in the Lord always I will say it again rejoice that's Number one, that's how we go on the offensive. You see, Satan absolutely loves it when we lose hope. When we get hit hard and withdraw because we're disappointed with God, there's high fives all over Hades. We need to interrupt that celebration. Instead of turning us away from God, our defeats and disappointments should turn us in the other direction. We need to increase our thirst for God and turn up the volume of our worship. I learned this from an African church. I went to a Rwandan service. People who had just survived the genocide, many of them had seen their families slaughtered. And the service started with the worship leader praying, oh God, thank you that we are not like one of the dead ones. And then they began the most enthusiastic worship service I have ever seen. And I thought, wow, how is that possible? Could I ever be like that? When our heart is broken, we can either encourage Satan or we can exalt God. Let's stop enabling and encouraging the enemy and go on the offensive and amp up our worship. The second area where we need to go on the offensive is in loving our enemies. Not just tolerating them, but loving them, really loving them. That's what Jesus talked about in Matthew 5. You see, our battle is not against flesh and blood. When we hear these things, we know what the source is. We know where it's coming from. We hear voices in our culture crying out against the church, claiming that we are promoting hate. Now, if we are promoting hate, then shame on us. We need to repent because Jesus told us to love our enemies those who criticize us, those who condemn us. We need to go on the offensive and overcome evil with good. We don't hate anyone and we won't hurt anyone. Remember when uh, some abortion protesters shot doctors working at those clinics? That's not the answer. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. We love our enemies and overcome evil with good. 1 Peter 2, verse 12 says this, Live such godly lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. That requires not living naturally, not responding naturally, but responding supernaturally. And of course, the third area, we are to go on the offensive in prayer. And we're talking about the kind of prayer that illustrates the spirit of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5, where he says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient. Christ. Elijah went on the offensive with a subversive prayer that was aimed at undermining the current regime. Elijah prayed earnestly, earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Now whose idea was this? Was it God's or was it Elijah's? I kind of think it was both. I don't think Elijah just sort of stumbled onto it. James emphasizes that Elijah was a man of prayer. And prayer is not just asking God to do something. The most important part about prayer is listening. Elijah was deeply disturbed by what he saw happening in his nation. And he felt the way God did because for many years he would had long conversations with God about the state of the nation. Elijah must have spent a lot of time listening to God's voice. What are you going to do? What am I supposed to do? And that's when it became clear. I think that's it. That must be the answer. So Elijah prayed that it would not rain. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. Elijah was a man just like us living at a time just like this. So his life is an example to follow. In a decadent culture where evil is escalating and darkness is enveloping the land, we need to go on the offensive by intensifying our worship, by loving our enemies, and by becoming prayer warriors. We need to aim our prayers at the strongholds of the enemy like battering rams until... They collapse, but we don't rush to judgment. First, we have to commit ourselves to spending generous amounts of time listening until we start to feel what God feels, and then we will know what to do. When believers find themselves in the dark ages, they need to pray. And in their prayers, they need to listen. And then they have to be willing to pay the price. And that brings us to this table. Because here, we are reminded of the one who paid the ultimate price for our souls. And we are following him. Father, we thank you that... uh, you have given us an opportunity to be faithful. Thank you that even though there is so much pressure to conform to the world, we can see by your Spirit that you have given us a much higher calling, and we want to be faithful to that. Even if we have to pay a price, because we follow the one who paid the ultimate price on the cross, And that's what we realize when we come to this table. Thank you for the cross. In Jesus name, amen. Going to invite those who are serving with us to come to the table now. Let us all prepare our hearts to Remember, commemorate, and celebrate this wonderful sacrifice that has saved our lives, saved our souls. We're going to switch to this mic. Paul writes these words in uh, 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, "This, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm going to ask Rita to lead us in a prayer of thanksgiving for the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ represented by this bread. Fairest Lord Jesus, precious Jesus, you died on the cross, a broken body for us, and we come now, Father, as we partake in the bread, we praise you, Jesus, we praise you for your broken body, you are our savior, you are our redeemer, and you paid the price, and all gratitude and worship goes to you, amen.